verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Please pray with me once again. Father, I just ask for more grace. Grace that would be transformative, that we would continue to grow to be more like your son. And how we love one another as members of the body of Christ, husbands and wives, parents and children. Lord, that we would continue to grow to be defined by biblical love. Love that is, is consumed with a, with a desire to see others grow in Christ-likeness regardless of the cost to ourselves. And Lord, that such a transformation cannot be manufactured just by discipline or by study. Lord, we need grace. We need spiritual power. And so I pray that you would bring it. You would give it to us so that we might honor you as you deserve to be honored, specifically in our families. And I pray that you would specifically even work through your word this morning in this text. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to wrap up uh, the series on the biblical family, which we started a few weeks ago. Although there's much more that could be said, this is not meant to be an, an exhaustive study of what the Bible says regarding uh, relationships within family members. Um, it's just really driven by a desire the elders had to want to just ground us again in uh, biblical principles for what God says our families should look like. Um, and we believe, of course, that our families can improve, but we wanted uh, to focus particularly on families for a while because we see the strategic importance of having spiritually healthy families. When, when families are spiritually healthy and strong, then the church is really spiritually healthy and strong. Uh, we are what we are within our families. That's true of us as individuals, but it's also true of us as a church. We're, ne- we're no more strong as a church than our families are spiritually strong. And I think also the spiritual health of our families is also the best evidence of the truthfulness of God's word. And the power of the gospel. Albert Martin, a famous Baptist pastor, wrote this a few years ago in Banner of Truth magazine. He said, if people look to the homes of Reformed Christians and see there's a structure of order and a cohesion and a respect for authority that stands out in direct contrast to the shoddiness and shallowness of the man-centered kind of thinking that has permeated our churches, It will be one of the most powerful arguments for the truths we claim to believe and one of the most effective ways to shut the mouths of our gainsayers. But without it, dear fellow ministers of the gospel and fellow Christians who love reformed truth, the truth of the scriptures, much of what we say will be abortive and come to naught. 
In other words, what he's saying is there's no better argument, there's no better defense of the Christian faith, the realities of the power of the gospel and truthfulness of God's word, than how that's expressed in families. When people see families live out their faith, they're compelled towards faith. Now, we've, we've recently looked at Paul's instruction to husbands and wives. And now we want to turn our attention to children and parents. A really simple outline. First and ver- three verses give instruction to children. And then the last verse, verse 4, gives instruction to parents. Let's look at his instruction to children first. He begins in verse 1 saying, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So the instruction, quite simply, he gives to children is they are to obey. Uh, the Greek word is hupakuo, which quite simply means to, to do what you're told to do. So if you're told to eat your peas, you eat your peas. If you're told it's time to go to bed, you go to bed. This instruction puts the authority in parent-child relationships squarely on the shoulders of the parents. They're the ones that God has appointed to make decisions. Now, one of the implications of this is that parents should never abdicate their authority that God gave them to their kids. And then want the kids to make the decisions. Now, they can do this simply by giving options to the kids of what the kids want to do. But really, this gives... That gives away their authority, and it puts the authority on the children themselves. If there's a clear right and wrong way to respond to a situation, the parent needs to make that clear and instruct their child, this is the right thing to do. If a child chooses the wrong thing by refusing to obey, uh, then they're also choosing punishment. The parent needs to discipline for for that rebellion. The the child needs to know that the parent is the one in charge, not them. That needs to be very clear. And it needs to be instilled at the the earliest ages. If a mother or child, sorry, mother or father asks their child to do something, obedience to what the parent said is not an option. So somebody might ask, well, what if a child is asked to do something they really don't like to do? Such as parent asks them to take a bath and they don't like baths or parent asks them to eat their spinach and they just don't like spinach isn't it cruel to ask a child to do something that they they don't like doing is it loving we must keep in mind that as adults most of what we're asked to do we don't want to do in fact it's that's part of what it means to be an adult is you do things not because you feel like doing them, but because you're responsible to do them. And if they don't get done, then bad things are going to happen. When we avoid asking children to do hard things or difficult things, really all we're doing is prolonging their immaturity. Training them that it's okay just to live based upon what you feel like doing. That's just, that's childish thinking, frankly. We're only stunting their spiritual growth as well. Now, I'm I'm not saying that we should do everything we can in our power to make their lives miserable. We still need to love them, right? We we shouldn't ask them to do something that we ourselves wouldn't do in their place, right? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. That still 
applies to children. But part of loving them is preparing them for the challenges they're going to face ahead in life. Life is not going to, uh, it's just not going to work according to their passions and desires. And we need to train them that part of life is difficult, it's challenging. They need to learn to rule their passions, rule their feelings, and to do what's difficult. Now notice the qualifier, though, that Paul gives to this command to obey. He says, in the Lord. So children are not just to obey their parents because they're children, but they should particularly choose to obey because they're Christians, because they're followers of Christ. So Paul clearly is addressing believing children here. Because he uses the phrase, in the Lord. We know this because unbelievers are not in the Lord. But the principle of parents being the authority of the homes is, is not limited to Christian households. So this principle still applies. Children need to obey their parents even in non-Christian households. But all the more, of course, when children are claiming to follow Christ. So it doesn't give license to unbelieving children to disobey their parents. It just simply clarifies that children who claim to follow Christ need to obey. That's a good question to ask. Often young children will express an interest in wanting to be baptized because they see other kids getting baptized or adults getting baptized and they they think, I want to do that. Well, one way to test if they're ready is are they really ready to obey in everything? That's the instruction given in Colossians chapter uh, 3 to children. Obey your parents in everything. Are they ready to do that? Well, if they're not, it just shows they're not really fully ready to submit themselves to Christ. The fact that a child has been born again necessitates that they submit in the Lord. In fact, this is what he means when he says, for this is right. The word right, dikaio, means what is just, what is righteous. It's the same word that's just plastered throughout the book of Romans. Translated justice or righteousness. So this is the righteous thing to do. It's not just a good idea to avoid punishment. This is how you do what is just. Because you're a Christian. So to obey is not just uh, wise. It's right. Right? And to disobey is not just foolish. It's breaking God's law. And thus it will result in angering Him. Not just your parents. It will result in putting yourself at odds with the sovereign God of the universe, which is not a good idea to do. And then Paul notes that his instruction here isn't new. It's rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, it's one of the Ten Commandments that was given at the very beginning of the law. The Ten Commandments were essentially just a summary of what the law informed Israel of. And one of the summary statements, of course, is to honor your father and mother. Verse 2, he says, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Well, what does it mean to honor? To honor your father and mother. The, the Greek word is tamao, which means to show a high regard for, to honor, to revere. Essentially what it means is to treat your parents Like they are more valuable, the most valuable relationship you have in your life. Pleasing them 
means more to you than pleasing your teachers, your coaches, or your peers. Because their, that relationship is so precious to you, you value it. In fact, the word honor here is the same word Jesus used to describe his relationship with God the Father. In John eight forty nine, he said, I honor Tamao, my father. But we need to recognize, too, that such honor can be faked. It's not hard to fake honor. In fact, many people pretended to honor Jesus. But he called them out as hypocrites. He said in Matthew 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So we can fake honor, but we're, we're not fooling God who gives this command. These people didn't fool Christ. And likewise, if you only show superficial honor to your parents in order to just get what you want or in order to avoid punishment or displeasing them, just know that God is not going to be pleased. Because you're playing the hypocrite, just like Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees. When you just fake honor to parents, children, teenagers, you're just playing the part of the Pharisee. So that this honor isn't just outward, it comes from the heart. As an act of worship unto God, essentially. And also remember, though, that when you choose to honor your parents from the heart, notice what it says here. God promises that he's going to bless you. When he, when he states that this is the first command that comes with a promise, right? That you may go, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. What it means essentially is that when you choose to honor God from the heart, God promises that he's going to make your life a success. Right? This is the young person's secret to a successful life. Honor your parents from the heart. That's profound. Growing up, my favorite thing to eat on birthdays and other special occasions was Chinese food. And I always looked forward to the end of the meal when I got a fortune cookie. I was thinking, that, that, Devin, you got fortune cookies all the time. Like that. <laughs> Every cookie you got was a fortune cookie. <laughs> but the... Uh, um, I love the fortune cookie, but I was a little bit superstitious because uh, I wanted to find out what's my future going to look like. Am I going to have success? I, I kind of believed what was there in that gimmicky cookie. Um, but this promise is not some gimmicky piece of paper wrapped in a sugar cookie. This is a promise made by the king of the universe and written down as scripture, as a promise and the scripture cannot be broken. If you honor your parents, God promises He's going to bless you. So if you want a successful life, learn right now, kids, to honor your parents from the heart. And you can do this various ways by obeying them, speaking well of them, especially with your peers, not criticizing them, undermining them making fun of them, seek to serve them, go out of your way to give gifts to them, especially on Mother's Day or Father's Day or Christmas, writing them cards, encouraging them, especially when they're down, even praising them when it's appropriate. Again, 
the word to honor means to show that they're valuable to you. Therefore, pleasing them is important to you. Are your parents convinced that, that you value them and that it's your eager desire to want to please them? That's what we're commanded to do as children. And consider also, parents, that teaching your kids to honor you isn't just self-serving. In fact, it's not intended to be self-serving. This is actually a way to prepare them to receive God's blessing. Right? If you care about your kids' success in life, you will train them to show honor to you and even to other adults. It's a way to instill, again, God's blessing, preparing them. And that discipline that it's instilled will also be of benefit to them later as well. Let's look now at God's instruction to parents. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, of course, Paul directs his instruction here primarily to fathers. But by implication, mothers as well, because they serve as partners, supporters, helpers to the husband in bringing up the children in the Lord. So it's directed towards fathers because they're the head of the household and bear ultimate responsibility. But the mothers are also partnering with their husbands in raising their children. And so... Therefore, in the outline, I've indicated this is God instruction to parents, not just the fathers. And he gives two commands here to parents. He says, don't provoke them and bring them up in discipline and instruction. Let's look at that first phrase. Do not provoke. The word provoke means to arouse a reaction. Right? To, to push, a person's butt, push a person's button, so to speak. It's to... to prod or to irritate it can even mean to enrage a person doing something that's going to get a reaction he says don't provoke them to anger i was thinking well, what does that look like what are ways that fathers can provoke their children to anger ten things that i came up with by first of all constantly finding fault with them like they can never do anything right They'd worked their hardest, and they could have always done better. I was confessing to, to one of my children, <laughs> I do this constantly, he can, he, in his races, he get a PR, and I'm always thinking, all right, okay, but you could have run, you still had a little bit left in the tank. And then I got convicted, it's like, man, <laughs> he's doing three times as much better as I would have done. Well, I could get, I mean, he doesn't mind the challenge, but that can get discouraging. If you, like, you give your best, and it's still not good enough. Or refusing to listen to them. They're wanting time. Or they're trying to explain it, you just cut them off. You're like, this is what I said, go do it. But you're not willing to understand what is it, what's, what's going on in their heart. What are they struggling with? Why are they hesitating? Is it fear? Is it um, misunderstanding? Taking time to listen. And not just order them to do, follow your commands. Thirdly, presuming to know their motives. Right? We can easily think, well, I knew what I was like when I would say that as a kid. And therefore, when my kid is doing this, I know what's really going on. When we're not the Holy Spirit, we might know our kids better than anybody. But we don't know them better than God. And we need to recognize that we miss things all the time. Just like your spouse misunderstands. 
If your spouse misunderstands you, how long, and she really, or he really knows you, what are the chances you are misunderstanding your kid as well? Fourthly, by failing to give clear boundaries, and even too much freedom. Kids need to know what are the expectations so that they, that they know when they've crossed it, they know when they're close to crossing it, um, or, or they know when they're doing what's right, what's pleasing to you. We need to make that clear. Uh, fifthly, micromanaging them. Just, be, just paying too close attention to detail. Or being like a helicopter parent that never really gives them the freedom to grow. But they always feel like they're under their parents' watchful eye. It's oppressive. That'll, that'll cause anger and discouragement. Sixthly, seeking to control them rather than guiding and instructing them. Where the goal is making sure they do exactly what we want, rather than us helping them become what God's called them to be. Having unrealistic expectations or being inconsistent in expectations. Sometimes we can sin against them by comparing their behavior to other kids, whether in our family or not. Why don't you be like your brother? Why can't you be like, you know, the Joneses' kids? Battling discourage them. Or tenthly, taking your anger that you have at others out on them. Right? We know that we can't take our anger out on the police officer that just gave us a ticket, so we yell at our kids. You know. The dog's not around, so we'll yell at them. When they did nothing wrong. So dads, I want to encourage you to ask each of your children if you struggle in any of these ways. And kids, I want you to be prepared to answer them honestly. If you love and you honor your parents, you'll tell them the truth. If they're doing something that's, that's provoking you to anger, you should tell them. Even if it's hard to hear. See, sometimes kids, we parents don't realize how we come across. We fall into our own ruts and we just do things and, and we don't realize how we might be hurting you. And it's helpful sometimes to know if you could tell us in a respectful and honest way that, Mom, Dad, when you do this, it hurts and it discourages me. And so you can help us by respectfully pointing these things out that might be provoking you to anger. The second command that Paul gives here is bring them up. Um, it's the same word we saw earlier in Ephesians 5.29 in respect to wives. Uh, there it's translated I think, nurture. It speaks of providing for a person by giving them whatever they need to both grow and thrive. Literally, it means to cause to grow. Like a gardener provides water or soil and fertilizer and then actively weeds uh, around their garden so that their plants have everything they need to, to bear fruit. Now notice, though, whose job it is to help parents, or sorry, help children grow spiritually. It's, it's the parent's job. And fathers in particular 
One of the biggest mistakes I think that well-meaning Christian parents make is they abdicate their authority to Christian institutions, such as Sunday school. Okay, they'll do the job of raising, bringing up my children in the Lord. They'll teach them theology. They'll teach them obedience. Or we're going to send them to a Christian school. This was common when I worked at a Christian school. Just parents assumed the discipleship was going to take place within the school. They would train the kids to be to know the Bible and what it looked like to obey their parents and everything else. And so they had, they were, they were, that's why they were spending tons of money to send their kids to this Christian school is because they thought the school would do better than they could at home. And it never worked out well when they made that assumption. Same thing with youth ministries. We, we, we want to be able to care for kids and help them. But really, this is, it's us as a the, the, the ministries we have for youth in the church are just meant to be supplementary to what parents are doing at home. We're very purposeful about that because we, don't, we understand it's not the church's job to raise children. It's father's job, parents' job. So here we have the goal of parenting, right? The goal of all the rules, the goal of instruction and this is what being a father and mother is all about, right? To, to, to grow your children, to nurture them, right? It, it isn't getting children out of the home. Right? We don't bring up our children in order to have a retirement plan. So when we're not making money, they're going to provide for us. All right? it's, having children, the goal of having children is not to impress your friends. It's not to show that you do a better job parenting than your parents did. Right? It isn't even to keep the earth populated. The goal of parenting, the goal of Christian parenting, is to help our kids grow to be mature, godly individuals. Right? And so the question you ask yourself is, are they doing that? Are you, when you think about what presents to get them, what, where to invest their time, what activities, what are the priorities of a family, you need to be thinking, how, does, how is this going to help them grow spiritually? That needs to always govern your mind. Once you become parents, you need to constantly be thinking about how do I help my kids grow in the Lord and make decisions based upon that. And Paul tells us how this growth is brought about. He says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word discipline there is paideia. There there are whole books written about just this one word. It's if, you, if you're involved in homeschooling or classical Christian education, you've probably come across this word because it's used here in the context of parenting. But it's also, uh, it, it can be translated actually education. Uh, this is how the word is actually used in Acts 7.22. Moses was instruction, instructed uh, in the Paideia in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. It's the verb form of paideia. Here in Ephesus, sorry, in Ephesians, paideia really covers all the agencies which contribute to moral and spiritual training. But it's also used specifically of discipline. Discipline in the sense of receiving punishment when you do something wrong. And this is how it's used in Hebrews 12. We saw this earlier, but I'd encourage you to turn there and look with me once again at what God says in Hebrews 12. Go 
beginning of verse 11, it says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So clearly here, paideia, or discipline, is not referring to education. Because education can be joyful, can be nice. It's not all painful. Some of it probably is. But not all of it. Especially in America, not most of it isn't. But it can be. But punishment for sinful and foolish choices is painful. And, and what's connected in both these uses of idea, education and discipline, really, again, is the goal. The goal is the improvement and growth of the child, both in behavior, how they act, as well as their understanding. Even the use of the word discipline here in Hebrews is in the context, interestingly enough, of parents' relationship to their children, which suggests that physical discipline is also what's in mind here in Ephesians chapter 6. Hebrews 12 also demonstrates that such physical discipline is loving. Look at it again. Have you forgotten the exhortation that was addressed to you as sons? My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Is it for discipline that you have to endure? God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Think about that the saying about the love of discipline. Choosing not to discipline is unloving. It's ungodly. God loves us so much, he's not going to sit back and let us make a mess of our lives as Christians. Because now we are his children since we're in Christ. If we go astray, he will discipline us. And it won't feel good because he needs to get our attention so that we do not ruin our lives in our folly. He, in fact, tells the church of Laodicea, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. God shows his love for us in disciplining us. And that's why when we're disciplined, we shouldn't lose heart. We should rejoice. Our God loves us. He's not going to let me get away with my stupidity. He's a good God. And likewise, our love for our children demands that we will correct them and discipline them. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. We show love in being diligent to discipline. Now, I think usually the main, uh, one of the reasons parents are reluctant to discipline their children is because we hate to see them in pain. We never want to see our kids in pain. And we certainly don't want to be the ones that are bringing about that pain in them. In fact, I think in the case of Christian parents, we would rather bear their pain than to bring them pain. If we could. I think most parents would, Christian parents would relate to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 when he says, For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Like, like, like Paul, we, we love our children so much that we would gladly, 
bear their punishment for them if we could. And even I think if it came when it comes to heaven and hell, we would rather go to hell in their place if such a thing could happen. But the reality is it can. Each person will have to bear their own sins for their own for their own choices. We can't take their place in hell. And that's precisely why we must do everything we can as parents while there's still time to prepare them. While we still can influence them. And I think we can do that by administering biblical discipline. Proverbs 23:13 and 14 says, "Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die." If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. The the way we direct our children towards the Lord to understand their need for the Lord and to understand that sin does have painful, horrible consequences is by showing them. It's not cruelty, it's love. So the nature of children demands that we discipline them. Proverbs 22.15 Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. This proverb tells us physical discipline is a tool to help children not be foolish, to, to train them to be wise. Right? Really, the essence of foolishness is doing what we feel like doing. You want to know who the fool is? The fool is... When you ask a person why they did what they did, they go, oh, because it just felt like, I felt like it. The person is saying, I am a fool. And the reason a fool doesn't listen to wisdom and instruction is because they, want, they make their decisions not based upon reason, not based upon truth. They make their decisions based upon what they feel like doing. And so no matter how many good arguments we present to them, at the end of the day, they're still just going to choose what they feel like doing in the moment. Because they're fools. And this is why you can't reason with a fool. And therefore, the best way to train them is to show them foolish decisions bring pain. Because that's what they listen to. They listen to what they feel. And so if they feel bad, if they feel pain, they realize, I don't want to do that. That brings pain. And so you're training them based upon what they will listen to. Now, the moment they're willing to listen to wisdom and instruction... And they show that by following it, by making the right choice. You don't need to discipline them anymore physically. Because they've learned to listen to words. They've shown that they're wise. But when they make choices based upon what they feel like, the rod is necessary. They need to learn to equate sin and folly with pain. So the goal of discipline is not to control them. Or to shame them, it's to train them not to be led by their feelings, which is what all people do naturally. In fact, most adults live that way now because they never were learned, they never learned to discipline themselves because they weren't disciplined by their parents or disciplined well. All right, we want to train them to be led not by their feelings, but by words of wisdom. Proverbs 29.15, flip over there. It's a good proverb. Proverbs 29.15. Proverbs says many good things to help us in parenting. 
It says the rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Or you let the child do what he feels like doing. It's just going to result in shame. To the parent. J.C. Ryle warned his parents in his congregation by saying this. He said, remember, children are born with a decided bias toward evil. And therefore, if you let them choose for themselves, they are certain to choose wrong. The mother cannot tell what her tender infant may grow up to be, tall or short, weak or strong, wise or foolish. He may or may not be any of these. It's all uncertain. But one thing the mother can say with certainty, he will have a corrupt and sinful heart. It is natural for us to do wrong. Our hearts are like the earth on which we tread. Let it alone and it is sure to bear weeds. He continues, beware of letting small faults pass unnoticed under the idea of it's just a little one. There are no little things in training children. All are important. Little weeds need plucking up as much as any. Leave those weeds alone and they will soon be great. It's good wisdom. The second word Paul gives is instruction. Nuthasea, which literally means to put to mind. Uh, it's usually translated to admonish. In fact, you might have heard of the word nuthetic counseling. It comes from this word, nuthateo, uh, which means to warn. So another f- way to describe biblical counseling is nuthetic counseling, because the goal of counseling is to do this, to warn people to do what is right, according to what the Scripture says, not according to what they feel like. To listen to God's Word, not their feelings, not their fears, not their lusts. In fact, one of the key verses in biblical counseling is 1 Thessalonians 5.14, which uses this word. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is very applicable to parenting. It says this, And we, use, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, that's the word there, admonish, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That's good instruction to parents. That's what we're called to do. All those things. According to the need of the moment. And different kids are going to need different things at different times. And so here in Ephesians 6, 4, Paul is instructing parents that they need to warn their children. But also notice that he qualifies that this discipline and warning needs to be in the Lord. So just as children are called to obey in the Lord, also parents are called to discipline and warn in the Lord as well. So this tells us that the child's education, therefore, needs to be not just academic, but it's biblical. They need to know what the Word of God says. Because your parenting needs to be in the Lord. Secondly, it also tells us that parental authority doesn't give a parent license to be a tyrant. Their instruction needs to be according to the Lord's instruction, not according to their personal preference. Right, a person who might despise dictators, such as Vladimir Putin and Mao Zedong, Kim Jong-il, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, right, the same person may demonstrate the same sick love of power and control by how they dominate in their homes. Right, they, they, at their company, maybe they're on the low rung of the totem pole, they have no influence, 
And so when they come home, though, they want to exert their power and authority there, and they become tyrants. Again, our homes are truly the best mirror of who we really are. My parents are put in authority over their children, but that authority is, is authority God has delegated to them. The children don't belong ultimately to the parents. They belong to the Lord. Right? Even as parents, we're still subordinate to God. If we don't, if we don't parent according to His instructions, then we're the ones that are in rebellion. We're the ones that are going to receive discipline. So again, we don't establish what's right and wrong. God does. We don't personally establish what's true. God does. We don't establish even what's beautiful. God does. Right? All authority we have is under Him. We're simply His delegates. We can only declare what God says is true, good, and beautiful. We will never properly administer biblical discipline in our homes unless we ourselves are under submission to God first. We serve Him. Psalm 103, again, is helpful here. Rather than being tyrannical, parents should be ruled by compassion. And Psalm 103 says, Fathers are ruled by compassion for their children. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we're dust. Right? Instead of being tyrants, we should be defined by compassion. It's assumed that parents should be compassionate. And to instruct our children in the Lord necessitates, again, that we're living out what he is teaching. We're not just saying, hey, do what I say and not what I do. We're showing our kids this is the right way to behave. We're not just telling them. And so there's never, a parent should never have any reason to hide what they're doing from their kids. There should never be a sense of shame. Because they're examples. J.C. Ryle said, Instructions and advice and commands will profit little unless they're backed up by the pattern of your own life. Your children will never believe you are in earnest and really wish them to obey you so long as your actions contradict your counsel. To give children good instruction and a bad example is but beckoning them with the head to show them the way to heaven while we take them by the hand and lead them in the way to hell. Right? When, we, when we tell them, hey, this is the right thing to do, and yet go and do something contrary, we're leading them to hell, not to heaven. It doesn't matter what we say, they're going to follow what we do. Our example speaks far louder than our words. And they sh- but they should be consistent. And therefore, we should tremble before Jesus' words in Mark 9.42. When he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the city. This isn't a joke. This isn't some light thing. Even though there's a lot... I know know you guys don't think parenting is a a joke, but I'm just saying it's so often we, we, we put so much attention to projects at work or in the home 
and we, we, we give little thought to parenting. And we give little thought to our inconsistencies and, and our faults. Or we just begin to think, well, that's, I just struggle with this. And we don't put any effort to put it to death. The example we give either could be leading our kids towards their Savior or it could be leading them to hell. These are sobering words and they're real. You guys know they're real because you've seen people turn away from Christ because of the bad example they had in parents. Who won't even give ear to the thought of Christianity because of the abuse of their parents. Or we must remember that we can lead little ones into sin, again, not just by our teaching, but also by example. At the beginning of the 20th century, the American educator A.E. Winship embarked on a fascinating study about the descendants of two interesting men who had lived 150 years previous. The first were the descendants of a man called Max Jukes. Now, Jukes's descendants included... Seven murderers, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes, 150 other convicts, 310 paupers, and 440 who were physically wrecked by addiction to alcohol. Of the 1,200 descendants that were studied, 300 died prematurely. The second family he studied was the descendants of Jonathan Edwards. Edwards' legacy includes one U.S. vice president, one dean of a law school, one dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 100 clergymen, and 285 college graduates. The the impact of a godly family truly is incalculable. Which is precisely why we need to do everything we can as a church to submit ourselves fully to what God instructs us to do. Because the impact that we can have as a church if we truly raise up godly children and love our wives like Christ loves the church and submit to our husbands out of reverence for Christ, when we can function according to God's design, the impact we can have, not just on this generation, but on multiple generations to come, is truly incalculable. And so let's strive in earnest to obey these things in whole. Heavenly Father, we do just pray for grace. And Lord, we know that, that we fall short in, in so many ways. And we've, we've, we've erred in so many things. Some of us have, have disciplined harshly and in anger and not out of love. Some of us have struggled to discipline at all. Or we, we have not honored our parents as we should. And even still struggle to honor them as we should. Lord, even as, even as adults, Lord, we still are prone to follow our feelings rather than your word. Even our own lives can, can even be defined more by folly than by wisdom. And Lord, 
the whole point in saying this is that we need grace. We don't want to be stagnant. And we certainly don't want to decay as families. We want to be strengthened. And so help us to see little by little what we need to change, what practically we can do to bring about strong, healthy, thriving, uh, spiritually substantial families within this church. And to know how to come alongside one another and seek counsel and wisdom. Lord, we need, we need grace for all of this. And so we pray that you would help us in Christ's name. Amen.